Welcome to the Ask Anything Podcast, because some things are better said than read. My name is Peter LaRuffa. I'm coming at you recording this on Monday, February 14th, which ordinarily should be a happy day. It's Valentine's Day. Enjoy celebrating Valentine's Day with my wife and my daughter. Um, But it's kind of a sad day here in the Natty, in the northern Kentucky area, uh, because our beloved Cincinnati Bengals went all the way to the Super Bowl, but were not able to pull off a win last night. And, um, it's really been a special and surreal time. I think being, uh, I'm not a, I'm not like a lifelong Bengals fan, but just living here in Northern Kentucky, I've had lots of people reach out to me like, what's it like? And, um, is everything like, it's just been crazy for, um, the past few weeks, specifically the past two weeks. Um, it's different than living in a big city, uh, with a big with big market teams, right? Like New York City is a huge metropolitan area. It's a global city. When the Yankees go all the way, which I always hope they never do, but they do. When the Yankees go all the way, when the Mets go all the way, when the uh, Islanders or the 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 Rangers go all the way, there's always a camaraderie that exists within the city for people who are a fan of that team. But we're dealing with a. You're always dealing with a subset of. 8 million people in the city and upwards of 11 to 12 million people in the in the tri-state metro area. And so you never really feel like a certain event has gripped the city. But living in uh, a smaller, with a smaller market team in a smaller um, Midwest city or a suburb of one in Cincinnati is really something. I mean, over the past two weeks, you can't go anywhere without seeing some sort of Bangle Tiger Stripe or Go Bangles or Who Day or some sign. The our buses, our bus system, like the public transit system that we have, they literally on their signs would say like not in service, go bangles. Like it was everywhere. Hospital billboards have changed to say go bangles. Uh the whole stadium, if you've driven by Paul Brown Stadium uh, in the past two weeks, every light that could have been lit up was on that could have been lit orange. And at night you just saw this orange glow come from near the city. It was amazing. And so if for no other reason than just wanting to see your hometown, your your city win, I was rooting for the Bengals. I couldn't. I was so hoping that they would win, and unfortunately they didn't. But here's the other cool thing is that even though they lost, people aren't talking smack about them. People are so excited for the fact that they got as far as they did. I heard one sports commentator say, and I don't think this is unique to him, but or to her actually, um, but none of us, not a player, not a coach, Nobody predicted that they would get into the Super Bowl. We are all equally surprised and thrilled that the Bengals went as far as they did. And so the fact that they got into the Super Bowl and played in the Super Bowl last night is just great. And everybody's really excited for that. Did we want them to win? Of course. Were we heartbroken that they didn't? Of course. But everybody still loves the Bengals and have rallied around this team maybe more now than ever and is really excited for the 2022 football season. So it was fun while it lasted, but unfortunately all good things come to an end. So today, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to actually do kind of like a rapid fire session where I'm going to look through some questions that have been sitting out there for a while and attempt to answer them very quickly. Maybe they'll give you a little bit of help on where I stand on those things or maybe help you start thinking through them. Each of these questions could be dealt with more at length. Some of them I might come back and deal with a little more and some of them this might just be it. But they've been sitting out there for a while and I'm grateful that you've submitted them and so I'm going to take a shot at answering them very very briefly and firing through them and here we go 
Advice for dealing with young kids with fear and anxiety. Man, that's so hard. And that's probably something that I would want to come back and answer a little more thoroughly with Sarah with me because we've dealt with that with with our kids. I would say this, just start by looking at yourself and maybe your spouse as well because I think oftentimes fearful kids have fearful parents, anxious kids have anxious parents. Not all the time. We've dealt with it in our family, and I don't think anybody would describe Sarah or me as particularly fearful or anxious. But sometimes kids will learn from their parents' reactions and treatment of certain issues and how they handle life. And so without getting into more detail, I would say look at your own heart, look at your own uh, how you respond and how you handle issues in life. Do you tend to give off uh, a, a fearful disposition, an anxious disposition, maybe the Lord would change you to be uh, more trusting in Him and less fearful and anxious, and maybe your kids would benefit from that as He grows and changes you. Best scripture to show a young person who is saved and wanting to date a non-believer they believe they can lead to Christ. Ah, missionary dating. Uh, I go with, uh, I think the classic on any on this topic is 2 Corinthians 6, uh, beginning in verse uh, 14, where the Apostle Paul is writing to the Church of Corinth, and he says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols, for we are the temple of the living God, etc., etc.? And so you nowhere in this passage is marriage or dating reference. This is actually just talking about our relationships. And the picture that's being given there is a, a yoke of oxen, if you will, who are pulling in opposite directions. And so the closer you grow with somebody, the more of an intimate relationship that you have with them, even as close, close, close friends, the more likely you are to rub off on each other. And Sarah and I have certainly seen that in our marriage over 20 years. I'm a little more like her. She's a little more like me. Hopefully we're all a little more like Jesus. But see, that's what's going to happen is when we're rubbing off on each other and growing and changing together, Hopefully, we both have our eyes on the prize. We both want to be more like Jesus and less like ourselves. When only one person is doing that, there's going to be an alternate effect where you're going to try to be leading them to Christ, but they're not going to want to necessarily be going there. And I think having a close relationship like that is not wise according to the Scriptures, and certainly uh, having a marriage or a dating relationship is not wise. That doesn't mean you shouldn't evangelize them. That just means you'll be a better witness for Christ in showing them the firm stance and how much Christ matters to you by you saying, I'm not going to engage in a romantic relationship because I actually love Jesus more than I love my feelings. And I hope that we can talk about that and that's a good witness to them. And if that works out, great. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Would love to talk more about this. I actually have a phenomenal story about this that I would love to share with you, but don't have the time to do that in a rapid fire session. I have some homosexual friends and family members. I also have a trans acquaintance and a non-binary acquaintance. How do I even begin to approach the conversation of God and the Bible? Or if they ask my views, how do I lovingly explain what the Bible says? I think so many people in the LGBTQ plus community feel so jaded by the church. What can I do to fix that? I would start out by saying this, I wouldn't try to fix that. I wouldn't try to defend God. I don't think God really needs defending. Um, I don't think the Bible needs to be defended. It stands pretty well on its own, and the Word of God will stand forever. 
if I were you, what I would do is I would seek to talk to them about the same things that you would talk to other people about who weren't wrestling with these issues. I would try my best to build a relationship with them. And of course, if they asked you directly about what you think, I would tell them what you think according to the Bible in an unapologetic way. And there's a way to do that that's both loving and kind, um, but also honest and unapologetical because you're not going to apologize for what God has written in the Bible and you are uh, not the author, you are just the messenger. You're passing on what God has shown you in the scriptures and you don't do that with apology. And so we're reminded of Jesus who is full of both grace and truth and I would prayerfully approach those relationships and ask the Lord to show you what it looks like to be full of grace and truth. Of course, there's more that could be said, but that's all I could say now. When and why did Catholics add books to the Bible? Why are they not considered part of the inherent Word of God? And so what you're talking about is the apocryphal books or the deuterocanonicals. So the apocrypha, that word means uh, hidden. Deuterocanonical means second canon. And these books were never recognized as scripture by uh, the people of God, even closer to the time when they were written. So Israel always had great respect for these books. They're not necessarily evil. They just put them on par with other great books and other uh, philosophical writings of the time, but never saw them as uh, scriptural. In fact, most of the church never saw them as scriptural till the 1500s, which is when uh, the Roman Catholic Church added them to uh, their canon at the Council of Trent. And so uh, I don't know the exact reason. I would think it was in some way, shape, or form a response to the Protestant Reformation. And so that is why the Catholics have added, uh, it was their response to the Protestant Reformation, they added these books to their canon, uh, but Protestant Christians never have done so. Is the line descended into hell in the Apostles' Creed biblical? I don't think so. I think in large part we have the King James Version of the Bible and the way uh, certain words were mistranslated as hell, particularly in the Old Testament, when in reality that's not exactly what the uh, Hebrew was saying. Uh, there's a difference between hell and Hades, or hell and paradise, or hell and uh, Sheol. Uh, those are different, and we can get into that another time. Uh, you think of Jesus when he's hanging on the cross and he goes to uh, the thief that uh, asks him to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. He doesn't say, today I'll see you in hell. He says, today you will see me, uh, we'll be in paradise together. And so I don't think there is a biblical warrant for Jesus having gone to hell. Did he go to Hades or did he go to paradise or did he go to Sheol? Yes. Did he go to hell? I don't think you could prove that from a biblical text. Can you explain intercession? Christ died once for all my sins. Why do I need constant intercession? It's a great question. Uh, I think Jesus died on the cross, and when he did that, and he said, it is finished, uh, it is paid in full, right? There's nothing more that is owed uh, for your sin. Your sin debt, if you will, has been paid in full. However, you're constantly being accused, particularly by the enemy. And so think of the story of Job, if you're familiar with that, right in the first chapter. Uh, Satan uh, tells God, you know, if you took away every way that you're blessing him, he would curse you to your face. If you uh, bothered him in this way, he would just abandon you, is basically what he's saying. And there, Jesus, so let's say when Satan does that about us, Jesus is our advocate. He's our lawyer. And so he's not protecting us from the wrath of God. He has appeased the wrath of God. The wrath of God no longer uh, rests upon us. Instead, the love of God does, right? Because Jesus has absorbed the wrath of God as our propitiation, as a wrath-absorbing sacrifice. But we're still accused, and we can rest knowing that we have Jesus as our advocate who makes intercession for us. He is our defense attorney, if you will, telling Satan that he is wrong and reminding him of what he has done on the cross and that it is truly finished.
What role can we as Christians play in being productive and responsible followers of Christ in response to the climate crisis we are all facing? It seems like this would be a great opportunity for us to step up and be the leaders in working towards a solution. Uh, this is obviously a difficult question to answer because people have different and varying opinions as to whether or not we are in an actual climate crisis or if this is just the way things have always been. And there's probably some pretty valid arguments on both sides. I'm not a climatologist and I haven't really gotten into it much. Um, and so while I'm not personally alarmed and thinking this needs to be a primary focus of my life, I still think we need to think about what it means to be good stewards of the environment because that's what God has given us, right? The same uh, dominion mandate that he gave in Genesis chapter 1, telling us to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, and to subdue it and have dominion over it. God has charged us with being the stewards of all that he has created. And so Adam did that in his way back when uh, he was naming animals and in caring for the earth and cultivating it, et cetera, et cetera. And we need to figure out what that means for us. I think where we sometimes get it a little off is... Uh, sometimes there's people who are obsessed with this, and this is all they want to talk about and do. And so sometimes people who have opposite of views go to another ditch, and they're like, it's almost like people are like, I love the earth. The earth is, I'm just married to it and have a romantic relationship with it. And it's like, that's weird. And so people are like, I hate the earth. And they're like cutting down trees just because they can. And it's like, calm down, Paul Bunyan. There's probably a middle ground here. And it's not being obsessed, but it's also not being completely flagrant and negligent. And just because you can do that doesn't necessarily mean you ought to do that. And so I think it's just thinking through what would be uh, the best thing that you can do in your sphere of influence to be a good steward of the environment and to take action accordingly and doing so in a way that you believe honors God and serves people. Do I need to confess or repent from sinful dreams? That's a great question. Um, I think... I don't really know what I think. I actually had an answer ready, and I just started to rethink it. Um, I think, generally speaking, um, we are at all times responsible for our actions, at all times responsible for what we're thinking about. Sometimes dreams that we're having could be a byproduct of how we've chosen to spend uh, our time or our resources or what we're focused on or what we're thinking about. Maybe sometimes dreams can reveal maybe hidden motives within our hearts that when our guard is down, when we're sleeping, they are called to mind. Um, and so I don't think, um, gosh, how do I want to word this? I think if the Lord is calling it to your mind and you feel convicted about it, you're like, oh, I've just spent time, even though I was asleep, I spent time focusing on things that I shouldn't be focusing on, right? Philippians 4, verses 8 uh, and following, or just verse 8 actually says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is of good report, meditate on these things. Literally in the Greek it says, make your mind these things. And you just think, wow, for a good portion of last night while I slept, I didn't make my mind these things. I think if the Lord's calling that to your mind, um, I think you should confess it to the Lord. Um, you know, the Bible says in James 4, um, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Think of Romans 14, 23, which says, uh, but whoever doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith, for, for whatever does not proceed from faith is a sin. And so I think if the, if the Lord's laid it on your heart or it's on your mind a lot and you're thinking about it, you can go to God and confess it. Don't, don't feel, it's, it's not like he doesn't know you're thinking about it, right? And so if you're like, I just don't feel good about this. I feel, I feel awkward in front of the Lord. Don't feel awkward in front of the Lord. Go to him 
and confess it, and knowing that if you confess, uh, if you confess your sins, He is uh, faithful and just and right and good, and will uh, keep His word in forgiving your sin and cleansing you from all unrighteousness, as we're told in First John. And so, I would say, what harm could there be in confessing and asking for God's help? Go to the Lord, confess it as sin. Ask him to help you to cleanse your mind. Ask him to guard your heart and your mind when you are most unable to do so, which is while you're asleep. And ask him to help you think about the things that would bring him glory and honor. In Matthew 5, it talks about divorce only for marital unfaithfulness. Should one then not divorce in cases of abuse, what then should be done if not divorce? Definitely for another podcast episode. Um, But generally speaking, I would say Matthew 5 is not the only place that we look to for counsel on how to have a biblical uh, perspective on divorce. And so it's a matter of looking at the whole of Scripture, uh, old and new, and saying, what has God told us when it comes to marriage and divorce and even remarriage? And so I would say just along these lines, one would want to consider verses like 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verses 12 and 13, uh, when Paul is talking about what it means for someone to consent to live with someone or be pleased to dwell with someone. Um, And that would be probably where I would go just to start this conversation uh, as to what uh, one should do if they have grounds for divorce, particularly in uh, the case of uh, some sort of abuse that you're talking about. And uh, I tend to hold to that in most cases of physical or sexual abuse, um, even maybe some emotional abuse, depending on how that's come about after you look into it. I think in most cases, divorce is actually um, a, a, a right thing to do, and uh, that's why God has provided it. And so that's for a separate topic another time, but I think that's uh, hopefully enough to get you thinking about these things. Well, thanks so much for watching Ask Anything. My name is Peter LaRuffa, and it's always great to hear from you. You can find a link in my bio on Instagram to submit questions anytime or wait for the stories to appear and reach out to me there. Hope you have a great and blessed day.